Welcome into a brand new episode of the Whole Story Podcast. On today's episode, Howie Rose, the voice of the New York Mets. Howie, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. This is just such an unprecedented time in the world and in the country's history. So how are you holding up throughout this time? Oh, about as well as anybody can be expected to, I guess, just like the rest of us, climbing the walls, missing baseball, and getting a little goofy hour by hour. It's getting worse. You know, the one thing that I'm learning now as a baseball fan is, you know, baseball and sports as a whole allow you that escape from life, and you don't have that escape right now with without sports. And what baseball, aside from any other sport, it allows you to escape escape within a game. What would be one biggest aspect that you're missing most without no baseball right now? Communicating, because that's what we do. We're broadcasters. And by broadcasting's very nature, you are connecting with people. That's why I went on Twitter, because I missed that connection. Mm-hmm. And so I just miss the essence of what we do for a living apart from a specific sport or for a specific team. I miss communicating. At what point, you mentioned joining Twitter and just getting back connected to fandom. And a lot of conversation right now, there's you know obviously been a conversation, is social media worth it? You know, Is it needed? And right now, it's really all we have to connect with one another. What would be one of the biggest things that you loved, especially broadcasting? Because if you didn't have a passion for this and working in the sports industry, you wouldn't be doing this. It takes a special person to not only do it, but last in it, frankly. At what moment did you realize, wait a second, I love what I'm doing. There's not a day that goes by when I'm in the booth that I don't find some way to sort of press the button that allows me to reset or recalibrate whatever might be going on that day. And just even if it's for even if it's for a fleeting a, a fleeting second, take a little pride and satisfaction in what I am doing for a living because obviously I'm doing it for a team I love and and you know we've been through that over the years. My background as a Mets fan growing up. But, you know, I'm subject to the same things that happen to every announcer in any sport when maybe you're having a season that's not so good or you're having a game that's dragging on or a game where one team or the other is as far out in front and, and things are really slowing to a crawl. We have a big picture up in our booth of the original Mets broadcasters, Lindsey Nelson, Bob Murphy, and Ralph Kiner. Mm. And I knowingly and intentionally steal a glance over at that picture from time to time to reset me, to make me realize just how incredibly fortunate I am, not only to be doing what I'm doing, but for whom I'm doing it. And that's what helps me get through, you know, the mundane or the or the somehow elongated games. You know, Howie, last summer I was a play-by-play broadcaster for a summer collegiate team, and I think the final record, I blocked out some of the games, I think the final record was like 17-35. and 35. Not a great team. And one of the biggest challenges for me was, well, when we get to the seventh inning and we're losing for the 10th game in a row, not to get silly almost. And at what point, again, you've covered not only just the Mets, baseball, every team, every, each and throughout the years that you in seasons, they're different. And you're competing against teams that are different and built differently. 
How do you really navigate yourself as a broadcaster? 162 games or the, throughout the whole season, even if you have days off, you still, you know, it's not like you have a day off and the next day you feel completely refreshed. So at what point in challenge do you have to get through to not you almost get silly near a seventh inning game where you're losing for the 10th straight game in a row or just the overall length of the season? Well, for one thing, every game is different. So if you take it from the beginning on any certain day or night, you don't know what you're going to see. I didn't know when I drove to the ballpark on June 1st, 2012, that Johan Santana would pitch the first no-hitter in Mets franchise history that night. So you always have that level of anticipation and the potential for something unique the minute the umpire says play ball to start the game. So that's energizing in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But in terms of games that get out of hand, well, you do have to have a certain, I think anyway, in my opinion, certain side of you, whether it's uh, somewhat irreverent, whether it's just an innate ability to find the humor in something, even sarcasm, you've got to have the ability to stay focused on the game enough to where even if the score is somewhat out of hand, you keep the listener informed, but you also know I've got to find a way to keep them entertained too. And the more you go on in the business and the older you get, simply the more experiences you have to draw from. So it's a lot easier for me now, who remembers the Mets since day one, to find some sort of nugget that might connect the game we're doing that night to something that happened 20, 30, even 40 or 50 years ago. That just comes with experience. But a lot of it is visceral. You just have to have a feel for the moment and an understanding of the need to keep the listener entertained, and hopefully that comes naturally. Obviously, you have experience in both TV and radio, two completely different styles of broadcasting. You know, on TV, you're narrating, and then on radio, that's considered calling baseball games. And you have to distinguish, okay, well, on radio, you don't see anything, you just hear. But on TV, you see things. Do you have a favorite? A favorite medium? Yeah, what would you prefer? Do you like the just simplicity that TV kind of gives you or the more in-depth painting the picture that radio leads you to? Oh, there's nothing like radio. And I think that anyone who grew up in my generation of broadcasters, and if I could be so bold, I would put myself at the oldest edge of that generation, the one that came, say, after Marv Albert in New York anyway, because Marv was my mentor and my tutor and my everything in the business. But um, I, I suppose if I place myself at the oldest edge of that generation, the younger ones and the furthest, um, I guess, back in, in that bunch would be the guys like Kenny Albert and um, Ian Eagle and, mm -hmm. and, you know, that, that group. Um, who are, you know, 50-ish. Um, I, I suppose the easier way to say it then is that anybody about 50 or older who grew up aspiring to be a broadcaster learned and wanted to learn the art and the craft of radio first and then ultimately morph into television. And that's what, you know, we all did to some extent at, at one time or another. Um, look, television is, is more lucrative, of course, and you know, you can never discount that in terms of someone's motivation. I've been fortunate to do both. I walked away from a TV job of 
my own volition. Um, so, you know, I'm settled into a place I'm very, very happy because nothing makes me happier than to call a game well on radio because I know that I've taken a blank canvas and created images that, that people are able to, to see without the benefit of actually being at or watching the game on television. There's nothing like radio. It's funny you bring up Ian Eagle. He was a part of the SCAA summit yesterday, and he kind of gave advice to younger broadcasters to no matter how many years of experience that you have in this industry, you still learn something every single day when you're broadcasting. What was the last thing that you learned that maybe surprised you? Oh, it might have been the last game that I did last game of last season and I couldn't tell you what it was specifically but we're always learning and we should never ever ever shut our minds to anybody's advice or even criticism I mean I've I've acknowledged things that uh, some of the newspaper critics have written over the years and maybe at one point somebody might have been critical of, uh, of me pointing out something that uh, I, I could have or even should have done better on the air and the easiest thing to do is to take exception to that and say, oh, who's this guy criticizing me? That is the absolute worst approach you can take because a lot of times something that they say as criticism is actually right on point and you can derive something from that. I can give you an example of that. And I don't know, I don't think this was written about me necessarily, um, but I think it might have been just a generic criticism of, of announcers that I believe it was Phil Mushnick made in the post years and years and years ago. Never just give the score going uh, into a break at the end of an inning. Identify the teams. Don't take for granted they know what they're listening mm. to necessarily. You, you know, don't say it's uh, Mets lead 3-3 three, three, or it's 3-3. Three to three at the, you know, Who's playing? You, you do need to identify. Little things like that um, that one might look at as criticism you have to be worldly enough and confident enough and secure enough in your own skin to say hey you know what he's right i better incorporate that because that's going to make me a better broadcaster so the ability to learn has to come from anyone in any place that doesn't have to be a peer in the business it can be a friend it could be a wife it could be anybody in this when you really get to the years of experience that you have you've worked with so many broadcasters and listen to so many broadcasters what do you look for most with a partner in the booth well there are a lot of different ways to go with that um because again radio and tv partnerships are completely different for example on television it's very much become the analyst's game meaning that you know, the play-by-play guy has always been considered the leader of the pack on the air, I guess, on television. But in a lot of ways, that's that's really changed because the technology is such with the number of cameras that are at any given game and the ability to run anything from a super slow-mo to a series of different angles of replays that can either clarify something that's questionable or enlighten a viewer about why it went the way it did or happened to break down or what made it a successful play even if it's a, a very almost uh, minute new nu- uh, 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 nuance it's an analyst's game now because the analyst is the one who's driving that bus and sort of floating that boat to use another cliche mm-hmm. sorry but you know the fact of the matter is that on television a play-by-play guy nowadays in my opinion has to be able to subjugate his ego Uh, so that the analyst can get in what the analyst needs to inform the audience. 
On radio, the partnership is more along the lines of simpatico. And I think you have to have the ability to share a certain type of sense of humor, uh, a willingness to challenge your partner, and just basically to have fun. And so that's a lot of what goes into chemistry. And a lot of that is really unforeseeable until you actually get behind the mic in, a, in an actual broadcast, even more so than an audition. And I've been really blessed throughout my career to work with just about every partner who I share that certain sense of simpatico with. So I, I've really, and I'm not saying this just to be nice or kind, I've enjoyed something or some things, or in some cases, most if not everything, about every single partner I've ever had in broadcasting. What would you say, a lot of people think, oh, you're a broadcaster, talking about baseball is easy. What would be one of the biggest challenges that you've had to face throughout your entire career? Well, there are a lot of them. I mean, I got into television sort of middle-aged, if you will. I was about 40 when I you know, started doing the Islanders, 41, whatever it was. And I had done little things on TV over the years, but not a regular gig like that was. So learning the mechanics was you know, a bit of a challenge early on. But, you know, one of the things for me on a somewhat different level that you might be looking for is, I I don't know if I've had the good fortune or the misfortune. I like to look at it more as good fortune, and, and it was more of a challenge than anything. Any job that I've had as a play-by-play guy has always come having to follow a legend. I mean, think about it. When I was doing the Rangers on radio, even though Marv Albert was still doing some games, um, I was doing most of them because Marv's responsibilities had gotten so wide and varied that, you know, he was only able to do maybe a quarter or so of the Ranger games in any given season. So um, I don't say replacing these legends. I say following them. So I had to follow Marv. Imagine that. You grow up listening to Marv Albert do the Rangers, and now you got to listen to me. Um, that was a challenge. And then when I moved from the Rangers to the Islanders, you know, now I'm having to replace another legend or, again, follow another legend in Jiggs McDonald. That was challenging enough going to the Islanders from the Rangers just a year and change after the Rangers had won the Stanley Cup. That was an even bigger challenge. And then, you know, when I started doing Mets radio, I was replacing or, again, following Bob Murphy, another Hall of Famer. So I've always had that sort of pressure, whether I created it for myself or it was just sort of inherent in the nature of what I was doing, of having to follow people who had been icons. And 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 so I would say that's, in, in some ways, the toughest thing I've had to do in broadcasting. What was one of the biggest pieces of advice that someone gave to you? It could have been the three broadcasters you just named or something that you've acquired throughout the years that sticks into your mind. I don't know about anything philosophical. Again, Marv was always my mentor, and I took my cues from him because he was a guy who had uh, grown up rooting for the Rangers and Knicks and became a broadcaster for them, Mm -hmm. but was able to maintain a sense of honesty. And I know a lot of people use the word objectivity. I think they're different, really, objectivity and honesty. Um, uh, There's no secret here. I grew up a Mets fan. 
I still want the Mets to win every game. I mean, I'm emotionally invested in the Mets and always have been. But hopefully that hasn't precluded me from telling an accurate story of what's happening on the field or internally within the Mets. And so I like to think that I'm able to separate my um, rooting interest, if you will, from the ability to be able to honestly depict what's happening on the field. I don't know that that came necessarily as advice. It's just something I sort of absorbed almost as, as osmosis. But one little piece of advice, which really made a whale of difference for me on television, is when I started with the Islanders, the network that we were on at the time was called Sports Channel in New York. And they had a legendary announcer who was under contract to them as a coach for their announcers and, and one of his roles involved taking somebody and i was the prototype really for what they wanted him for someone who was moving from radio into television with very little tv experience and just learning the nuances of television as opposed to radio that was the great legendary marty glickman mm. who was marv albert's mentor what marv was to me and still is really that was marty glickman the marv albert and so early on in my days with the islanders i was a little uncomfortable when we did what's called the, the scene set which is at the beginning of the game uh you open up and um, the announcer and the and his partner are just on camera talking about what's coming up on the game that night and i never was in the first couple of days real comfortable with who i should be looking at when my partner was talking back then my partner was eddie westfall mm -hmm. so you know i would say something to eddie and then eddie would be responding and now I'm, am i supposed to look at eddie am i supposed to look at the camera when do i steal a glance when do i come off of ed whatever well marty explained it to me very simply he said just imagine that the camera is the third person in a three-way conversation bingo that one sentence changed everything for me i never had a problem with uh, where I should be looking when I was on camera again, whether in a studio or in a booth for a scene set. Thanks you know, to Marty. Yeah, and one of the biggest things right now is we don't know kind of transitioning advice or just overall presence in a broadcast booth. We don't know what the overall atmosphere or even if there is going to be a 2020 season. I always joke uh, about blocking the word canceled on Twitter, you can actually, I don't know if you knew this or not, but you can go into the settings and say, I don't want to see this word on my feed. And I keep saying, I'm going to go put canceled because I don't want to think of a 2020 season canceled. But again, as of right now, the probability of no fans is high. And if anyone that's listening to this, and I know you and I both know this, if there is no fans and there are no fans, and you take a, if you quote-unquote let the broadcast breathe, it sounds like an eternity of dead air. So I guess my question would be, obviously, I'm sure we've had smaller crowds when we were first starting off in the business. I know last summer we've had, I had a few games where there was 10, 15 people in the crowds, and you did have that sort of atmosphere of, well, if you did stop talking, there is nothing happening. But now with with the potential of no fans, how is that going to come across on radio or TV? Well, if you're letting the broadcast breathe after a home run, how can you do that with no fans? Well, first of all, we're all going to be fully understanding of the situation. So I think that everybody who's listening, anybody who's there would immediately acknowledge the fact that, okay, this is different. Mm -hmm. And we're also thrilled to have baseball back. That right. It means a little extra dead air. That really won't bother anyone. 
But again, I go back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, and that's chemistry with your partner. It mm. just becomes a little more important for a partnership to be able to create different avenues for either discussion or of mm -hmm. interest that'll hold people. But generally speaking, that's the game's responsibility. The game should be able to do that. And because we're in such uncharted waters and the situation will be so unique, uh, I don't think anybody's going to worry if, if the background noise is not what you'd expect. I mean, without trying to be glib or, you know, really trying to be flippant about it, you know, broadcast a game at Marlins Park, mm. broadcast a game, uh, you know, in St. Petersburg for, for the Tampa Bay Rays or any other team that's not drawing at all. You know, there's, there's noise because you've got uh, the PA systems that are blaring music or whatever else is, you know, injected to try and drum up some enthusiasm. I trust that wouldn't even be necessary under these conditions. But again, we're all going to be so happy to have baseball back in any format that mm -hmm. that won't be a problem, I don't think. Now, Howie, I reached out on Twitter asking fans to submit any fan questions. We have a couple fan questions. The first one came from Brian Thompson. Um, SNY put out an article a couple weeks ago, and Gary Cohen, Keith Hernandez, and Ron Darling topped and gave their top five Mets moments. What would be one or two top moments that you've had, either as a fan of the Mets growing up or as a broadcaster? Well, now we're reaching across 58 years, so I immediately go to October 16th, 1969, because mm -hmm. that was maybe the happiest day of my childhood. And Look, I mean, I got married and have two beautiful daughters, and, you know, the day I got married, the day those children were born were very special days. I remember, you know, Kevin Lowe coming up to me on the ice while we were uh, – broadcasting and celebrating the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup and said, isn't this something? I said, Kevin, I got married. I had two kids. And then there's this. And that's how I feel about October 16th, 1969. Nothing can top that. It was pretty cool to be 15 years old and have your favorite team unexpectedly win a World Series. Mm. So that's always going to be at the top. Um, you know, for me, having the words, the Mets win the pennant come out of my mouth in 2015 was almost surreal uh, because it just took me back to so many games I played as a kid, either in the schoolyard or Stratomatic or anything where, you know, you'd be quote unquote the Mets and it would be a game of that magnitude and you'd pretend when it was over that that was the clincher and you'd say the Mets win the pennant. Well, to be able to say that on the air, that was huge. Johan Santana's no hitter. That was incredible because I never thought it would happen. I didn't even believe it for the first half second after David Freeze struck out. Um, frankly, I, I, the night that in 2015 again, David Wright hit the home run in the upper deck mm -hmm. in Philly, his first game back after four months out with his uh, very serious neck injury. Um, I told David after the game, that was one of the handful of times in my career where I literally, literally got goosebumps while I was making a call because of who David is and what he represented and meant to the Mets. I mean, that was off the charts. I guess that's four. And, um, you know, if we're talking just baseball here, and, and as a fan, I'll give you one that won't make any sense to you because it was just a um, an, an almost innocuous game in a lost season, but it was way back in 1966 when the Mets were playing the Giants. I was at the game at Shea Stadium. Juan Marichal had a perfect game going against the Mets, two out, bottom of the sixth. 
Wes Westrom lets the starting pitcher Dennis Ryband stay in, hits for himself, hits a little bleeder through the middle for the Mets' first hit. They were down 4 nothing at the time, fell behind 5 nothing. They came back to win the game. Ron Swoboda hit a game-winning homer in the bottom of the ninth inning, and the entire way home, all I could think about was not only that it was the greatest game I've ever seen, but how did it sound on the air? How did Lindsey, Bob, and Ralph make that sound? And even then, I knew that's kind of what I wanted to do. So I guess off the top of my head, there's five for you. You mentioned Stratomatic, and that's how I fell in love with the strategy behind baseball. You know, my dad used to play before I was even thought of. And when I was 13, 12 years old, he t- taught me the ropes of Stratomatic baseball. When was the last time you played Strat? On computer, probably about 10 years ago. And the only reason I don't fool around with it, especially now, is that, and I don't know why, and I've spoken to the people there, many of them to do it, and there's certain applications, I think, and ways to sort of reconfigure. If, you, if you're if you on a Mac like I am, mm-hmm. I mean, I have, you know, Macs, everything. Yes. Um, and so the game on computer is not compatible with the Mac. And I enjoyed playing the computer game back when I had a Dell. And um, so I miss playing the computer game a little bit. Keith used to play it. I mean, Keith Hernandez would play it on the road, on road trips. He'd have the computer up on his plane, replaying seasons. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's a Stratomatic has, has grabbed a hold of just about every one of us in the baseball business, and, and I miss playing it, but it's, it's been a while. Would you ever pick it back up, uh, especially during right now with the unknown of what's next? Well, yeah. I mean, if my wife considered a computer and play Canasta Junction all night, I could play Stratomatic. <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, being on Macs and iPad right now where I am, I don't have anything other than an iPad and an iPhone. And I just don't have anything compatible with it right now in terms of Stratomatic. So if anyone in the higher-ups of Stratomatic Baseball is listening to this, you have to come up with, uh, because I have a Mac too, and now that you think, and now that you're saying that, my dad has a Dell, and he can play all, you know, all day yeah. on his computer, but yeah. I well, can't on mine. Right to the top, I've gone right to Hal Richmond with it, but um, you know, so far, no Mac. <laughs> well, Howie, this is my favorite part of the show. Before we wrap up, it's a fast five quick round. It's five quick questions, and you have how long to take to answer them. Are you ready? Wait, wait. I have how long to take? You have have however long to take to oh. answer them. So if you want, if you want, well, some people make it quick and some people want to expand on their response. All right. Well, let's try for quickness. And then if it's (laughs) something I want to elaborate on, I mean, I've got all day. It's not a matter of time. Right. It's a matter of you're testing my brain now in rapid fire fashion and it's (laughs) quickly disintegrating. So let's go. What do you got? Favorite sports movie of all time. Slapshot's the first one I, that I, I say simply because I saw it recently um, and also I'll stay with Slapshot. If you would love to work with one broadcaster, dead or alive, that you've never worked with, who would you choose? Great one. Well, I've worked briefly with Marv, but not in a game setting, nor would I, because, you know, we're both play-by-play guys, although I'm not putting myself in that category. We each happen to do play-by-play. He's in a class of his own. Um, but for me... Uh, I would say Mel Allen. If you could interview an athlete off the record, who would you choose? I'm going to answer this in a roundabout way, and it's not going to exactly answer your question the way it was posed, but I'm going to take you back to November 1980. I was having dinner with 
a date. This is several years before I met my wife. And um, the woman I was out with knew what I was doing for a living. And she asked me pretty much the question you just did. You know, which athlete uh, would I most like to interview or did I most enjoy interviewing or something along those lines? Well, at that point, Double Fantasy had just come out. And you'll see where I'm going in a minute if that doesn't ring a bell. But I said to the woman, I said, look, you could take every athlete I've ever met, every athlete I would ever want to meet, and every athlete that I did meet. So past, present, future. Take them all. Put them all in one room. Put John Lennon in the room next door by himself. That's the room I'm going into. So that's the answer. What would and, be? And the sad part about it yeah. is that less than a month later, he was gone. Mm. Just needless, senseless, and still can't get over it. What would be one book, it could be sports-related or not, that you love to read? Well, I'll just give you the most recent one I read because I've been reading like crazy down here. And that is a book by an author named Andrew Gross, who writes a lot of historical fiction. That's my favorite stuff to read, historical mm. fiction. It's called The One Man. And just look it up. I'm not going to go into a description because it's a very deep and complicated story. But The One Man by Andrew Gross is the most recent one I read, and it's fabulous. I would recommend that to anyone. And then the last one for the Fast Five, favorite teacher or professor, or I guess you could say teacher from a broadcaster that you've worked with throughout the years that you would consider? Well, I mentioned Marv Albert, Marty Glickman, Ed Ingalls was a, a tremendous mentor who sadly passed away just within the last couple of months. Um, I mean, those are three right off the top of my head. I had some teachers, believe it or not, in high school. And um, I, you know what? I'm thinking of college. Really, a few in high school really made an impact on me. A guy named Paul Frieda. Uh, an English teacher, a guy named Peter Drew, a history and social studies teacher. Um, my fourth grade teacher, a woman named Mrs. Abrams, uh, happened to be our teacher when President Kennedy was assassinated. And then a few months later, when the Beatles hit it big. And, you know, at that time, all the kids were completely Beatles centric. Mm. And like most parents and teachers, she couldn't stand them. Well, two years later, I had her again in sixth grade. I didn't get left back. They just moved her from fourth grade to sixth grade. So two years later when I had her, Rubber Soul came out, which was a tremendous breakthrough and my favorite Beatle album. And all of a sudden, she didn't mind them so much because she saw and acknowledged the genius. And so, you know, we, we got on pretty well because of that. But she pushed me and prodded me to be better than I'd been because I was kind of a dog. I wasn't really, I wasn't nearly the student I could have or should have been. But, you know, she always tried to get the most out of me, and I appreciated that. You know, one of my favorite questions, maybe not favorite, but interesting questions to ask because sometimes I feel like this. Did you feel challenged in college? And in challenge, I mean by sports broadcasting is a knack, and you can't really teach it. You either have it or you don't. At what point did you choose, you know, of course, I'm sure in college you said you think about everything that you want to do and can do in college, but did you feel almost like that you were entertained or, or I guess, challenged in college? Scholastically or as a, an aspiring broadcaster because there's a big difference? I, I would say, well, what, what did you major in in college? 
Well, communication, mm -hmm. arts and science, as it was called. Academically, I was only as challenged as I allowed myself to be because I didn't really take anything seriously that didn't have to do with broadcasting. That was a huge mistake. When I speak to high school and mm. college kids to this day, I say, don't make the mistake that I did. Force yourself to be a little more well-rounded. Take, by all means, a business class or an economics class. Understand the business world because I don't, and I never cared enough as a kid uh, because I was so single-minded and mm -hmm. tunnel-vision in my approach to broadcasting. So uh, academically, I, I was not really challenged because I didn't allow myself to be, and that was my fault, my mistake. Um, broadcasting, I just... I just, I just knew, you know, I knew this was all I wanted to do, and I never allowed myself to believe that it wouldn't work out. And while I was in college, I got my first professional job or jobs working as a, uh, a stringer at WCBS Radio very occasionally and also working weekends for something new called Sports Phone. So I just knew in college this was going to be my profession unless I screwed up. You know, a lot of times people talk about the competitiveness that this industry is. What what moment did you have, it could have been in high school or in college, that you realize every day is basically like a job interview in a sense where, you know, if you don't put enough homework or time into your homework, someone else is doing a little bit more homework that wants the job that you have currently. You have to have that ability and it's nothing anybody could tell you. You have to feel it. You know, broadcasters aren't a product of, snapping your fingers one day and saying, yeah, I want to be a broadcaster. The commitment has to be total. The commitment has to be almost lifelong. And I don't want to discourage anybody who might be thinking of giving it a shot who's, you know, in, in college or even out of college. But you don't stumble into this business. You work the entirety of your efforts to not only become a broadcaster, but to become a successful broadcaster, which means that just because you get your job uh, within the industry doesn't mean you're set. It's hard to get there. It's harder to stay there. And you just have to be driven, self-motivated, and indefatigable. And and that those are primary, and they are basic prerequisites. And if you don't have that, you're not going anywhere. Howie, my last question for you. If a 14-year-old kid came up to you, and they told you that they are never going to watch a baseball game and it's boring, what would you say to them? First thing I'd say is, have you been to a game? And generally, when you go to a game, no sport is better at selling itself in person than hockey is. Um, baseball's a little different. So many of us are uh, weaned on baseball by a parent or parents, mm -hmm. and so the connection is almost umbilical. It's so deep. But as far as someone being bored by baseball... I would say to them, look, you know, I'll sit and watch a game and point out some nuances to you, but I can't force you to like baseball any more than I can force you to like Brussels sprouts or spinach <laughs> if you don't like them. You know, it's all a matter of taste. Um, but I'd like to think that the more you're exposed to the beauties intrinsic within the game, and again, a lot of that comes from being at the ballpark and seeing that plush green grass for the first time and experiencing all of the uh, – different sights and sounds that are particular to baseball and just taking all of the ambience in, um, that's a pretty good way. And then hopefully they'll get a little more curious about the game uh, to watch it more often on television or hopefully listen on radio as well. 
But, you know, if I had any kind of connection to that kid, I'd say have someone take you to a game who knows the game mm-hmm. and spend a little time explaining things to you. And if you don't like it, you don't like it. Well, Howie, thanks again for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Where can all of this might be a new one for you, but where can everyone follow you on Twitter and especially throughout, hopefully, the 2020 baseball season? It's pretty pretty uh, easy one, Alex. It's at Howie Rose. Simple <laughs> as that. At Howie Rose. 